One of the lines from a poem by Rumi asks a question of whoever would hear his verse. He says, who are you really, wanderer? The poem talks about all the wanderings that we've done in this life. And then underneath that, who are you really, wanderer? When I come back to teach here on Monday night, I'd been away until last week for some time. Um, It's always kind of interesting uh, because it is a um, role to be in, to be the teacher. Um, I play the role of teacher for the evening. You play the role of I don't know, student or participant or whatever it is. Um, And it's a role, you know, that we switch back and forth. And if I reflect on the time over the past few weeks in my own life, I was on a retreat with this wonderful teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, and then did some teaching down in Palo Alto about forest monasteries. And they made this whole kind of forest inside the room. It was really quite wonderful. I went and uh, spoke at the funeral of a friend of mine, and I was in New York City and went out to the theater and also went to the Metropolitan Museum and saw the Vermeer exhibit, which is fantastic, and to the Museum of Modern Art and saw some modern art that I didn't particularly like, but there it was, and, (laughs) you know. Even sitting on the retreat uh, with Ajahn Sumedho, I was sitting there and one morning we went into the dining hall and they served a kind of rice pudding and I took one bite of the rice pudding and all of a sudden I was back in Bodh Gaya in India where they would serve a kind of milk rice with, with sweet sugar in the mornings when we would be sitting um, on retreat in the temple by the Mahabodhi temple of Buddha's enlightenment. And that whole world came back and there I was in this world of India and Bodh Gaya. You know, and in the course of the last few weeks, as some of you have, I've watched a number of different movies and Finding Forrester in there. I was in this whole reality of Finding Forrester and then another movie, something else. Um, And it feels like lifetimes. And which of those is who I am? Because in them they feel very alive and they have their own whole story and, and so forth. And then I come back here, and again, I'm supposed to um, get in the role of teacher or storyteller. Maybe I'm a storyteller. That's really, this is like bedtime stories, right? (laughs) And it's not just storyteller or teacher, but I'm an administrator and a Sangha member and a citizen. I'm also a shopper you know, some of the time, and an eater, right, and a sexual being, and a husband, and a writer, and a father, and um, so many different things, and we all are. It feels like not one lifetime, but a succession of lives. In the Mayan mythology, every hour is a god, and the Navajo like this teach their children that every morning when the sun comes up it's a brand new sun 
It's not the one of the day before. It's born each morning. It lives for about one day, and in the evening it passes on to never return. This sun has only one day, they say, so you must live this sun's day in a beautiful way so that the sun won't have wasted its precious rays on you. Acknowledging the preciousness of each day is a good way to live, a good way to reconnect with our basic aliveness and purpose. In Buddhist teachings, it's also seen that we are reborn one moment after another, that who we think we are is not this long extended life, but that in every moment consciousness, experience come together and create this moment in the present, which is really all we have. And I remember, I've told this story so many times, being on the three-month retreat in IMS and Barry, our center in Massachusetts. Oh, I guess it was the fourth or fifth or sixth year we'd taught this three-month retreat for a hundred or more people. And at the very end, this old Korean Zen master, Kusan, came to visit. Nine Mountains was his name, because he lived in the Nine Mountains Monastery. He had this big Zen staff, and he set up formal robes, and he looked at these people who'd been sitting and walking and sitting and walking for three months in silence, dedicated to their meditation. He said, oh, are you sitting, feeling your breath, mindful of body and mind and so forth? He said, no good. (laughs) (laughs) This, no good, this not get you enlightened. And everyone, you know, their kind of face fell. He said, only one question, and he banged his staff on the where he was sitting on the seat. He said, what is this? What is this life? What is this? That question gets you enlightened. So you have to start all over again, three more months, right? (laughs) Whenever our life changes, which it does a lot, sometimes by our plans and more often by those unpredictable changes, we encounter this mystery of our identity. Who are we? In some traditions, like the Hindu tradition, it's said that we are sparks of the divine. Remember that little poem where the baby in the womb in India sings, Oh, do not let me forget who I am. And then its song changes as it's born. Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. In some traditions, I think I've told you this also, somebody asked Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, when you speak of rebirth in Buddhism, but there's no fixed self, it's this process, what exactly is it that gets reborn? Well, he said, I'm sorry to say it's mostly your bad habits. (laughs) But there's something utterly mysterious about coming into this human realm. A poem for you. Tell me a story about when I was a baby. When you were a baby learning to fly, you couldn't control your lightness. We never had a moment's peace. We kept the windows closed all summer. But you were happy, and everyone said, enjoy this. He'll forget how by the time he's old enough to walk. And they were right. By the time you were old enough to walk, it was all a story we told. When you were a baby learning to fly, 
you flew back and forth between your mother and I. And there is something amazing about coming in and in this new, this newness of creatures in Bali, you know, they don't allow a child to touch the earth for three months. It's held, passed from one person to another. That's such a beautiful way to raise children. And then after three months, there's a little ceremony in which the foot of the child is first dressed on the earth. They say that the, the new beings and the very old beings are the ones closest to the divine because they're either just coming in or they're on their way back. And the ones who are the most distant are the ones in the middle with mortgages, like <laughs> the ones, right? But what is it that brings us into this being of human existence? In the past years, I've had the beautiful experience of being with some other kinds of beings that seemed rather intelligent and sentient. We went to visit Coco, the gorilla, you know, who speaks sign. And um, when we went to visit Coco and Michael, a friend who was working uh, with Coco teaching sign brought us. And we went up to see Coco across this little green lawn, and she was in her kind of dwelling place. And my daughter Caroline, who was, um, I don't know, maybe eight years old at the time or something, came along. And Coco signed, hello. And then she signed pretty flowers. And we looked around, there were no flowers at all. And then she signed pretty flowers again. And we looked, and my daughter was wearing a little floral print dress. How do you like that, huh? <laughs> she said, but rose would be a better color than that pink you have. It's a, <laughs> Or, where's my banana? I don't know. <laughs> when we were in Mexico on sabbatical some years ago, we got to swim with these two wonderful dolphins. Maya and Melissa were their names. And, you know, they came over and they, they look at you with these huge dolphin eyes. And it's really like being with Karmapa or the Dalai Lama or something. There is just so much presence and contact. And then you could hold on and they would pull you all around this bay where we swam with them. and. Uh, it was just um, like being with this huge, joyful, playful spirit that was conscious and awake um, and unencumbered. It was like being with some great, great teacher. Hmm. So we take a body in some form or other, you know, gorilla, dolphin, human, whatever, and these forms are phenomenal. It's different colors and different kinds of fur and different parts, right? You know, or lack of it, depending <laughs> on how it's going. Um, and then we have these mouths. I talk about one end, this hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly to kind of keep it moving and going, you know, and move it around in different kinds of strange ambulatory ways. Um, but who are we? Really, what is this? Now, in Western culture, usually we make our identity from what we do. You know, hi, my name is Jack, and, you know, what do you do? In India, as we've talked about in here, people rarely ask you what you do. 
And maybe in part it's because people don't do so much in India, which I think is really a very wonderful thing. Um, they might ask you where you live. That's a question, you know, or kind of what tribe you're from if you're in certain, not in India, but in certain parts of the world. But in India, the way you identify yourself more than anything is what form of God you worship. You know, are you a Shaivite who worships Shiva? Or, you know, do you worship Kali or Durga or Saraswati or Krishna or... Krishna and Radha, um, this tells about who you are. Who do you worship? What is the God that you follow? I mean, is what we do who we are? An ancient poem from the Mayans again. If I were to lead you into the depths of the temple, if I were to ask you which of these bones were which king, What could you reply? You would say, I know not, for the greatest and the least are confounded in common clay, and the blackness of this tomb is the sun's womb, and the dark night shines with bright stars, and we are thus for a time. We come out of non-human being, and we take birth. Kind of amazing and return. Kala Rinpoche puts it so simply. I like to repeat this teaching because it says so much. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So simple. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now something in us knows this. We know our connection with every other being, with life, with the breath of the atmosphere, with the the spirit that moves through beings. We know it, but we don't really trust it. I mean, I don't know, maybe we open the paper and trust, you know, how did the NASDAQ do today, or how is, whatever you put your trust in. And part of what makes meditation so extraordinary and so different from almost everything else we do is that to simply sit is to step outside of our identity step outside of the busyness and the roles. Because our culture is so caught up in different ways, in greed or ambition or fear or judgment or racism or, you know, a struggle between people all around us. And as we begin to sit, Certainly there's peace and a kind of a healing and an opening. But more than that, there just comes space. Henry David Thoreau said that the soul grows by subtraction and not by addition. It's not that you sit to meditate to get something else, but actually it is an opening, a letting go. And as we do open, then we see all the possibilities, sinner 
and sage, you know, or um, flow or struggle, and all the stories that we might tell ourselves about being the victim or the warrior or the workaholic or the nurturer or the great mother or the lost soul or, you know, the eternal youth, all the kind of archetypes that we play out at different times in our life. What the invitation of meditation and of the Buddha, the word Buddha means to be awake, offers is a remembering of this space of awareness, of the space of the heart, to listen to all these different stories and tales and fears and desires. Who am I really in all of this to inquire? I was talking to my daughter some weeks ago, and in the course of this last winter, she's been in high school, she had a a period that was quite difficult. Her high school itself is demanding, and if you remember being a teenager, you also probably remember suffering, right? Because it's part of it. Um, And um, she's a very thoughtful person, and trying to do her work, but they had more work now. It's crazy. You know, you go to school and then they pile on the homework afterward and it's like, what about your life? And and some of the kids, she and her friends have talked about, you know, it's almost like they're getting prepared to have some job in some company where they work 60 hours a week, you know. Why do this to them? And then various friends around, you know, as teens do, were having difficulty, which weighed on her heart. People who were um, depressed, maybe even suicidal in certain cases, or, or, or frightened or caught up in drugs, as happens to teens, and just people she was concerned about. Um, also, she had been, I don't know, the the reading matter in her English class included one flew over the cuckoo's nest and then the bell jar and I mean it's enough to get you depressed just to do the just to do the high school reading you know um, and then you look as a teen the teens start to look at the world and see what's happening to the environment you know or see the uh, injustice in this society that's so visible see the the homeless people in a county like this which is so rich, where it wouldn't take much, really, to care for them, um, very sensitively. And so she was having a hard time, a bit, and I remember going out for a a run. I kind of go out and jog a couple times a week, and she came along with me, and we were just having this conversation, and out of me came this story. I said, it's a little bit like the Buddha going out of the palace and seeing old age and sickness and death, that in some way you're really seeing very directly um, the struggles of this human life, of people you care about or the environment and so forth. And and that's um, what's apparent at this age. And I asked her if that was, you know, right. And she said, you know, that's what that's what being a teen is about, is to see this world, that you have to in some way. Maybe didn't used to be that way. You went from childhood to adult, but now in the teenage years, it's what, what you have to come to terms with. And then I looked at her and I said, well, is it okay? 
You know, can you do it? Because it's hard. She said, of course I can do it. And that's what teenagers are supposed to do. And there was this beautiful moment where the kind of confidence and wisdom that's there in her and there in every wise person said, yeah, of course this is difficult, but I can do it. It's fine. Um, Eugene Cash, who teaches here, said that he asks his daughter, who's now who's a little bit well, at the end of her teenage years, he's asked his daughter over these past years to sit with him in meditation once a year just once a year, and to look at him just through this one simple practice, and for a very short time to look at each other and not be father and daughter. Just to see each other, to step out of those roles and see that we're two beings who, in this particular moment, have this role of being daughter or being father, but that's not who we really are to one another. The invitation of meditation is to rediscover our connection with that which is timeless, which isn't caught up in ambition or fear or, or need or depression or all of those things. It's to stop, take a breath, listen with the heart, that's the organ. A true story from the English writer Bruce Chatwin who says, a white hunter in Africa, anxious to press ahead with his journey, paid his porters for a series of forced marches. But they, almost within reach of their destination, sat down their bundles and refused to budge. No amount of extra payment would convince them otherwise. They said they had to wait for their souls to catch up. <laughs> Maybe that's what we do when we meditate is really wait for our souls to catch up with all that we've been doing. To rediscover our connection with that which is timeless. To sit even in the face of joy and sorrow and birth and death and remember the great heart of a Buddha, that place of compassion and knowing. My teacher called it the one who knows. This place of being that can see all the dramas of the day or the week or the year as if to bow to them, say this too. As we sit and meditate, it's a kind of emptying, but maybe emptying is the wrong word or letting go. It's more a letting be, it's resting in the space that lets things come and go of their own. And then the dance shows itself. Hermes Trismegistus, this is one of the alchemical alchemists, said, with your mind's eye, remember or perceive your life from when you were in the womb, from just as you were born, from being a young child, from being a teen. Perceive your life with the eyes of a young adult and an older one. Perceive your life seeing yourself on your deathbed. And then look at your life from beyond the grave and hold all of these together at the same time and you can begin to see with the eye of the divine, the eye of wisdom. This dance that we've been given. So we begin to sit with our breath and the breath helps us just to open 
to what is here. Um, I talk about bowing to what arises. Probably my favorite passage of these last years is this reminder from Thomas Merton where he writes, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor knowledge could touch the core of their reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And to meditate is to allow the secret beauty to be visible with the body instead of trying to get rid of this body or escape. It's to sit and learn with a kind of respect and delicacy or healing tenderness uh, to allow the body to open and release and to allow the body to teach us when it's tight and when it's frightened um, so that we care for this body. Because if we can't care for this body, how can we care for anyone else or this earth? So there's a deep healing intelligence that comes through mindfulness of this body. And as we sit and meditate, not only does the body open and release and come back into some harmony, but the heart begins to open. The griefs we carry, the unfinished business, the work of the soul, the regrets, the things we haven't done, the beautiful things, the creative impulses that we've passed over, the tears that need to be shed. I don't trust a man who can't cry. General Norman Schwarzkopf said that. Thank you, Norman. Right? (laughs) So you sit and your heart breaks open. Tears and laughter and love and unfinished business, all those come. And it requires so much compassion to let ourselves open because we've judged ourselves in so many ways. How I'm supposed to be and how my mind and my body is supposed to be and how the world's supposed to be. And to step out of that judgment to say, oh, there's the judging mind, to bow to it. Is that who you are? The judging mind? I hope not. And then the body opens, the heart softens, and lets all the different feelings express itself. The mind begins to open. And it tells all its stories, fearful stories, you know, exciting adventure stories, guilty stories, amazing plans, incredible memories which are redone to its own credit sometimes. You know, you know, it's just a story machine. And it says, okay, you're sitting quiet, let me entertain you, right? And it will do the top ten tunes over and over again, right? And so you sit and you see the mind and you feel the feelings of the heart and the body energies open. This poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez. I am not I, yo no soy yo. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, 
whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. Somewhere there is a sense of a reality that's not these thoughts or feelings that rise and fall, these changing sensations of the body, that we can rest in, this attention, this presence, this openness. And there's a mystery that comes with it that's so beautiful. Every particle of everything every rock and stone, water, flower, every human being was once in the same place, flaming in the heart of a great ancient sun before the earth came flying out of it. We are made of that star and the irises in your eyes and the tissue of roses and the slow giant rocks in the mountain hearts were all born flaming locked in that star as it drifted like a light on the dark waters of the sky. We came out of this together. We are this. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, say the Ojibwe, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And so we sit, and after some initial quieting, we can feel that the breath breathes itself and the thoughts and stories think themselves. You don't invite them, they do their thing, right? And the feelings feel themselves and we begin to sense this sense of space or presence or awareness, a kind of mystery within which all that arises and passes away. It's so mysterious being alive. A good friend of mine went to India years ago, um, found herself up in the mountains, met some of the Tibetans and decided, maybe I'm interested in this Tibetan stuff. She's become a Buddhist teacher since then. She started to study a little meditation, trying to find her breath and quiet her mind. And she said it was, I didn't, she didn't know if she could do it at all. And then she was invited to this fire puja, kind of fire ceremony. And she walked for a few miles way up in the Himalayas following this trail and came to this valley, and there were 12 old lamas sitting around a huge bonfire that they were pouring butter in and uttering mantras and so forth, this wonderful scene that seemed really ancient. And all around them in a circle were 60 birds that were there facing them and facing the fire as if they were part of this ceremony. And she said, this is unreal. This is, this is mystical, you know. This isn't just, you know, following my breath. There's something more to it. In fact, the great Buddhist scholar Edward Kanza said, um, if there is no mystery, there is no real spirituality. The world is so much more extraordinary than our thoughts about it. And meditation begins to open us to that mystery. My friend Roger Walsh, who is a psychiatrist and a teacher and an author of dozens of books and so forth. One day, because he's very thorough, he's, 
He's done years and years of Buddhist meditation and shamanic training and very, think, all kinds of things like that. But anyway, he decided, because he was a scholar of these things, that he would read the Encyclopedia of World Religions from A to Z. So he started with Ahura Mazda, you know, and ended with Zoroastrianism down there and did all the forms of Sum- ancient Sumerian religion and the Parsis and the, you know, Mayans and one after another. And I asked him, I said, you finished reading all that, what did you learn? And he said, what I learned is that each one had a beautiful story about this world, about how it was created and about good and evil and light and dark and birth and death. They all had stories. They weren't all the same story, he said. And each one of them told a story that at best pointed back to a mystery from which the stories arose, but that the stories were like a screen on top of this great mystery, and none of those stories could really tell what the mystery was exactly. You understand? So meditation is this invitation to open to mystery beyond the thoughts and dialogue and ideas. My teacher Nisargadot used to laugh at us and all the stories we'd get caught up in. He said, you identify with everything so easily. I'm going to lose my money or I have to go do this or I'm not this or my children will be this, you know. He said, whatever you think you are, you take it to be true. The habit of imagining yourself as perceivable, describable is very strong with you, isn't it? And so much suffering. I find this impossible. The understanding that I am not this or that is the ground of my being. Wisdom says that I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. In a moment, you too can remember, and you do. Look in the eyes of your beloved, of your friends, of your children, of your parents. Look in your own heart and ask, who am I really? And remember that you can rest, that you can trust in what Ajahn Chah, my teacher, called in the one who knows, in that pure open heart that can allow all things to rise and pass and meet them with wisdom. You are that which is timeless, deathless, Now, people may say, all right, but how is this helpful in some practical way? You know, and I just say this. I've had so many people come to see me in the years that I worked as a psychologist. And people will come with their stories. I'm an orphan. I've lost this. I'm so depressed or lonely. I'm a fighter. I've been betrayed. I failed. You know the stories, don't you? Right? And we'll work with them and go all the way back to how who taught them the, the tragedy in their childhood or the things that happened that were our great grief that they carry. And the only way to go back is to really hold that grief with tenderness, as if to rehold that child until they go all the way back. Yes, I was wronged or betrayed or abandoned or hurt or whatever it was that they keep repeating. And then we think that and we make a whole life out of it. It's like the whole movie. That's the plot. And we're way back there with that, finally. And then there'll be a moment 
where I just look at them and say, is that who you really are? Are you that orphan? Are you that one who's been betrayed? Are you that? Is that who you really are? And in the right moment, you know, no matter how invested they are in this story about how they are, in the right moment, even they can't really believe it, you know, and they laugh. This is from the Zen poet Isa, centuries ago. He writes, In these latter-day degenerate times, <laughs> cherry blossoms everywhere. And to ask this question, who are you really? Is that who you are? Gives a space, a peace, a healing. Even the sorrows we carry can be held in this great heart of a Buddha. I mean, we've done it. You're already doing it. This space, Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. The goal of meditation, he said, is always to keep your beginner's mind, to allow what arises this moment to be seen anew, because it can't ever be repeated. You will never repeat a single thing in your life. You might try. That's the problem. But it can't be. It's always new. The goal of practice is to rest where we are and keep the beginner's mind. A wedding poem from Russia. The young girl who's sitting in the parlor trying to look sorry about leaving home. The bride comes... What's in the kitchen? The bride comes and sits in the kitchen her last long hour beguiling. She looks so sad, oh so sad. In secret, she is smiling. It's not okay to say you're actually excited to get out. But it's such an adventure. And many of us know it from really difficult circumstances. If you've had an accident and a near-death experience or something which threw you out of your body, that happens to more people than we know. And you look and you feel like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm just on the verge of dying. Those of you and probably a whole bunch of folks in this room had this experience. And then you look back in that moment, time stretches itself out because time doesn't really exist. It's just thought. And you have all the time in the world in those few moments to look back at your life and you say, wow, that was a life, wasn't it? That was an incredible one. Success there, failure there, joy there, sorrow there. That was, what a dance that one was. Wow, Boy. Now, it's important in hearing this not to confuse this openness or selflessness, as the Buddha teaches it, this emptiness, with low self-esteem, you know, a kind of depression and existential emptiness or meaninglessness that doesn't mean anything. I remember when I was first teaching and a woman came on a retreat and she walked really slowly like she was mindful. And I asked her about her practice. She'd been meditating with some other meditation teacher. And she said, it's all so empty. I take a step and it's empty. And I sit down and it's empty. And I looked at her and she was kind of disheveled looking. And from as best as I could tell, just looking with a little more clinical eye, she looked, um, she looked 
clinically depressed. She looked really depressed. And I said, tell me about this emptiness. And she said, oh, it's all around. Whatever I do is empty. You know, and it turned out that it wasn't emptiness at all. She, she'd actually been unhappy for a long time and she, there was no life left in her. Um, so meditation seemed like the perfect thing. Let me go on retreat. Walk slowly and see, it's just where she was. I looked at her, I said, that's not emptiness, that's depression, honey, you know. (laughs) In true emptiness, there's vitality, aliveness, well-being, and openness. And the masters that I've been with that I have felt the greatest spaciousness of their heart and their being are more alive than anybody else I know. I mean, they're also more eccentric in certain cases. And as one Sufi master told me, he said, when you get, when you really get more awakened, you also get, these masters, you also become sexier. (laughs) Now, I listen to this with some interest, mind you, right? And, and he explained, he said, I don't mean sexual. He said, I mean it in a, in a, eros in the sense of aliveness. And the closest thing I could say to explain it is that a, a friend of mine who is a psychologist at Harvard and also a Buddhist teacher named Jack Engler was for a time a novice at Gethsemane and Thomas Merton was his novice master. And I said, tell me about Thomas Merton. What was he like? And Jack said to me, he said, he was the sexiest man I ever met. <laughs> Do you understand this? He was the most passionate, alive being. So this openness doesn't mean that you become, you know, a limp noodle and a kind of um, Buddhist cretin or whatever it is, you know. There's a paradox that as we open, we become more ourselves because there's only one of us on this earth, in this universe, ever born like this and only one moment like this. May Sarton writes a poem. She says, oh, it's in this one. Now I've become myself. It's taken time, years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. Run madly as if time were there terribly old, crying a warning, hurry, you'll be dead before, what, before you reach the morning, or the end of the poem is clear, or love safe in the walled city. Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and density, now there is time, and time is young. Oh, in this single hour, I live all of myself, and do not move. And I, the pursued, who madly round ran, stand still and stop the sun. Warn other people's faces, you know what she means. So as we open, as we become present, the invitation of this meditative life is to be where we are and trust it. Trust the reality of the present. And when we do, when the trusting heart grows, what's left is not imitation or artificial, 
but aliveness that's as natural as the Tao, as resilient as water, as forgiving as the earth. One of my favorite stories to tell, although the beginning is difficult, remember Hurricane Andrew, I think it was, the big hurricane about 10 years ago that swept across southern Florida and devastated Homestead and parts of Miami. My old aunt Ellen lived there and her house was completely blown away. She she was saved. Everybody got out of the hurricane's path. But the hurricane also passed over the Miami Zoo, which is this fantastic, it's one of the great zoos of the Western world. Incredible creatures and plants and so forth. And the hurricane winds were so high there was an anemometer in there to capture the wind speed. And it broke at 212 miles an hour and then fell off. That was the last reading on it. So incredible winds. And the people who uh, ran the zoo were terrified of what would happen to the animals. You know, would they be shredded through the, you know, the fences, through the wire fences? What terrible things would happen? And all the structures were burned, were blown over in the cages and everything was destroyed. And admittedly, all the birds flew back to, you know, the Yucatan or wherever they come from. They were, they were very happy with this as soon as the bird thing flew open. Okay, hey guys, we're free. So they went back with great heavy hearts to look for the creatures that they cared for, which they loved, the, the great cats and the monkeys and the, you know, the shrews and the, the, the kinds of boars and all the things that there are in a zoo, you know. And here were these buildings in piles, just in piles and rubble. And they started wandering around and then they saw movement and heard sounds. And it turned out that almost every animal was still fine and alive. They had all hunkered down. I mean, they heard the hurricane coming. They knew very well what to do in the corners of things and so forth. And this huge hurricane blew down the zoo and they were all, and they were waiting like, where's my food? Hey, you guys, (laughs) are you coming back? I mean, where's dinner? There is something that is trustworthy in us no matter how life changes no matter what the difficulties are. And if we learn to rest in this true nature, what is left is this great heart of compassion and ease and resiliency. And it's not about some organized religion. It's not about becoming a Buddhist or, you know, some other something. I, I had a, uh, I have a friend whose name is Milton Friedman the name of that great economist that you know, won the Nobel Prize from Chicago um, some years ago. And this Milton Friedman um, worked in Washington. He was a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter in the White House, and he worked in the Senate for various Senate committees and stuff. He's quite a, he's a great guy. But anyway, when he was working at the White House, um, there was, at that time, a great inflation that happened, if you remember back in the 70s, and some real economic difficulties. And he said one day his phone rang, and he got this, picked up the call and said, is this Milton Friedman? He said, yes. And it turned out it was one of the archbishops who was in charge of the um, finances for the Catholic Church in North America. This was his job, kind of. And he said, I, I really want to talk to you because the economy is tanking and, you know, and we have the assets of the church and so forth. And 
get some advice, thinking, of course, that he was talking to Milton Friedman, the economist. So he said, where do you think we should put our assets at this time? And my friend Milton Friedman said, have you considered giving them to the poor? (laughs) And the man at the other end of the line in a really shocked voice said, is this the real Milton Friedman? (laughs) To which Milton, who has some wit, answered, is this the real church? What happens to us when we remember who we are is that things get easier. Not because we don't still suffer, because that's just part of human life, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Anybody not have that? I mean, that doesn't change. But instead, we rest in the heart. Like Gandhi said, before you act, think of the poorest person you've ever seen and ask yourself one question. Will this act be of any use to them? Or the teachings, judge not thy brother or sister. There are, where's my glasses? I can't read this one. (laughs) Start this over again here. Judge not thy brother or sister. There are secrets in their heart that would make you weep. Sylvia Borstein tells this story, and it's kind of a story about the secret beauty, about remembering to see that beauty in every being, which is there when we quiet, which is there when we trust, when we listen. She was teaching in New York City, and a uh, participant in her meditation program came up who'd been meditating for some time. And he said, you know, I was mugged the other day and it was really difficult. Can I tell you the story? She said, sure. So he was on the street in New York. It was the evening. And this man came up to him with a gun and asked him for his money. He said it was this guy who had a kind of scraggly blonde beard and eyes looked like he was high on some kind of drug or something. He said, give me your money. And so the man who was being mugged, you know, he said, hey, sure, here's my wallet, you know, take this. And he said, the the mugger said, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. And the guy said, it's really frightening. He said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. He tried to kind of put him off. Here's my watch. Take that too. You know, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. Well, wait, I have a few other things. Take this. And he kept giving him things. And finally he said, I'm going to shoot you. Uh, and he looked him in the eye and he said, you don't need to do that. You've done really good. You got $700 and my credit cards. You got a watch. You got uh, my checkbook. You got all this stuff. You really did good. And he said, the guy stopped. And he said, I did good? He said, yeah, you did really good. You don't need to shoot me. You can go back, show your friends you did really good. He said, oh, I did good, I did good. He took that stuff and he went away. It's funny, but it must have also been terrifying, if you can imagine. And yet maybe there's some way in which we're all just waiting for somebody to look at us in that way and say, you did good. You did good. 
and you have done good because it's who you are. It is your true nature. Underneath all these false identities, these tentative identities, they're not false. We need them. You know, you have to remember your zip code and your social security number and all that stuff. But underneath the body of fear, the small sense of self, the stories, the wounds, the ideas of gain and loss, and so forth, is a ground of rest and ease that is your true nature. And it's always here. And to meditate is to remember, to trust, to be able to see with the eyes of a Buddha, to reconnect with this truth. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember your true nature. Remember the clear, pure light from which everything in the universe arises, to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state unmanifest. Let go into this reality, into this light. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. Let's sit for a minute. Rest in the space of knowing, the openness of the heart that allows all things to rise and fall like waves of the ocean. And in this heart's natural freedom, it is said, there is born in us an exceeding compassion for all living creatures who do not remember their vastness and are entangled in their minds and the stories of this world. And thus we will spend our lives working for the sake of others. And yet all our wisdom has now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist as separate from ourselves. Wisdom sees I am nothing. Love sees I am everything. 
between these two, my life flows. So I'd like us to chant this chant of um, compassion, Om Mani Padmi Hum, nine times, and then we'll go out to the evening. Om is the universal sound, like the ocean. Mani means the jewel, the crystal, the, the jewel of the mind when it's opened. Padma, Padme means the lotus. So the jewel is in the lotus. The awakened mind rests in the lotus of the heart. Um, and hung is kind of a, an exclamation. So let's just chant. And as you do, you can allow the sense of compassion that is there in you to extend to all others. Om Mani Padme week, take time to remember, to stop, to be still, to listen to the heart. Good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.